All right, here we go. Let's jump right in. It's episode 23. You made it to 23. 23? Michael Jordan's number. Michael Jordan, the greatest player of all time. So 23, the greatest podcast episode of all time, is upon us. Let's do this, folks. Today, I'm just going to travel down a weird path. This podcast has kind of become just a verbal diary. Just, dear diary, here's what I'm thinking about. Dear diary, here's my life. Dear diary, here's a song I like. Here's a show I don't like. Here's a conflict I'm experiencing. Here's a theory I have. Was not supposed to be this way. I thought this was going to be like a one-on-one stimulating interview show with interesting people. Then I realized I don't really want to hang out with people that often. I want to hang out with people, but I want to do podcasts more often than I want to hang out with people. So I should say, I still plan to have some people on the podcast, really have a good list of people I'm going to be inviting on, but what it's become in the meantime, just a bunch of ranting, just a bunch of pontification, just a bunch of diatribes, just a bunch of monologues, just a bunch of bullshit. Here we go. All right. I'm walking this morning, right? You with me so far? You with me? Are you distracted? If so, listen to this some other time. But I'm walking this morning around Larkspur, California, and I smell fresh bagels. No better smell. There's now a Wise Sons right across the street from our apartment complex. Wise Sons is a Bay Area Jewish deli that makes everything from scratch, totally overpriced, but totally delicious. And when we saw Coming Soon Wise Sons Deli, we thought we were getting the full deli. No. It's more of a satellite, hole-in-the-wall restaurant. So you can get bagels, you can get locks, you can get some coffee, but it's not the full deli. The Wise Sons in San Francisco, that's where you can get the chopped liver, the whitefish, the bialy, the kanish, the ruglach, the sour pickles. Some of this sounds disgusting to people. The kipper, the herring, the gefilte fish, the matzah. Sebastian Maniscalco, one of my favorite comics, he has a joke. He married a Jewish lady. He's obviously Italian. And Italian cuisine makes people just close their eyes and go, mmm, Italian. If I say Italian food, people picture that big bowl of pasta. You picture the pizzas. You picture the carafe of Chianti. You picture the caprese. You picture the gnocchi. Do you pronounce the G, by the way? Are we saying gnocchi or just gnocchi? I don't know. But if I say Jewish food, what do you think of? And I know Jewish, that's religious, but it's also a culture. So it's unlike other religions. Like if I said Mormon food, Christian food, Catholic food, Buddhist food, maybe there are some cuisines that pop up in your mind. But for the most part, I say Jewish food, at least bagels and lox are in your head, which is maybe more Norwegian based, but the Jews adopted it long ago. And now there's delis all over the place. So that's Jewish food. Sebastian Maniscalco said it's gross. He went to a Seder during Passover with his wife's family, and he's like, why not just have the Italians cater it? What are we doing? Now, sure, some families can serve a nice brisket, but for the most part, you get used to this stuff that really isn't that good. It just becomes part of your culture, like gefilte fish. It's not a fish. You'll never hear about somebody in the ocean catching a big old gefilte. I don't even know what it is. It's like a hot dog. Tastes pretty good. What is it? I don't know. It's a bunch of different parts coming together. And it works. But if I was to offer most of my friends, my non-Jewish friends, some chopped liver and whitefish salad, they might have a bite and go, ugh. So I think it's an acquired taste. Maybe. More people like it than I think. But when a Wise Sons opened up in my neighborhood, I thought it was going to be every day just going back and forth. But no. 
They make fresh bagels in the morning and the smell is nice, but for the most part, I've only been there a couple of times and I avoid it. An open-faced bagel lox and cream cheese about 14 bucks. That's kind of high. That's kind of high. However, that's kind of an old school feel. Like if that was my bagel place in the morning and I came in, they said, hey, Rosenberg. And I said, hey, how are you? To be a regular somewhere. I don't think I'm a regular anywhere. There's too many options, too much variety. I mean, I have my favorites. I got my favorite pizza. I got my favorite Italian restaurant. I have my favorite brewery. I have my favorite sushi restaurant, but I'm willing to try all of them. I go to any of them. So I'm not a regular. That sounds old school. You know, old school urbanization. You're in your neighborhood. Everybody knows you at the laundromat, at the market, at the gas station. Everybody knows you. We don't live that way anymore. None of us do. We all have our neighborhoods. We may all have our stores and cafes and restaurants, but nobody's really living that old school urban life where you're a regular at every place and they know your name. It sounds good. It sounds charming. It sounds very storybook. And maybe one day when I'm an old man, I'll really try to commit to that. Where everybody knows your name, he hame. Probably the one place you don't want everybody to know your name is a bar. That's why it's funny that Cheers was a show that I watched when I was young, not realizing that Norm's probably pretty buzzed. Fraser Crane, he's probably hammered over at this side table with Lilith. Cliff, the mailman, he shouldn't be driving that mail truck anymore. When you're a kid watching Cheers, you know, there's some charm to it. But really, aren't these just a bunch of drunks who show up at the bar every single night? Well-written show, but where everybody knows your name, not really a good thing. All right, believe it or not, I found something that's frustrating. Believe it or not, I stumbled upon something that's kind of frustrating. Tell me if you're in this boat with me. Come join me in this paddle boat. When you're having some good old-fashioned small talk with somebody you've never met, and the topic of what you do for a living comes up, what's your profession? Isn't it frustrating when someone says something and you don't really get it? There's some jobs out there, and you really just don't understand them. You've heard them. Some job titles or job descriptions where you've heard for many years, maybe your whole life, but deep down, you have no clue what the fuck they do. Maybe even some of your closest friends. Ask yourself right now, right now, just ask yourself, your four closest friends, do you truly know what they do for a living? Now, some jobs, you get it. Teacher, you get it. Bartender, you get it. Chef, you get it. But sometimes you'll meet someone, what do you do for a living? I'm an engineer. That's all you're going to tell me? You're an engineer. I'm in marketing. And they use some words like, yeah, we're doing some outreach development. I don't know any of these words I'm hearing. I am a consultant. Oh, really? Just you're going to say I'm a consultant? And I'm on the other end nodding like that confirming nod. Like, of course, of course, you're an engineer. Great. Uh, Okay, nothing. Nothing comes to mind. So you go into a building and there's a paycheck and there's a boss some coworkers, and then what? Fill in the blanks. Talk to me like an eight-year-old. Yeah, I'm a wellness coach. I've heard that. What the hell does that mean? It's like George Costanza. He works in imports and exports. And even as he stumbled through that lie, most people didn't understand what he was saying. There's a lot of careers out there. A few of my closest friends, I don't know what the hell they do for a living because I'm not brave enough to ask the follow-up questions. Most people aren't. Most people are not brave enough to ask those questions like, wait, what does that mean? You say engineer. I nod and I go on with my day, but I have no clue what you do for a living. Yeah, I'm working with uh, refineries. 
Okay. Yeah, I'm on the manufacturing side. I don't get it. There's a fly in my room. I'm distracted. Why is there a fly in my room? It's big, big boy. Or if somebody says, yeah, I work for a nonprofit. Oh, oh, you work for a nonprofit? Nobody's making any money? You're just going in every day? Is this a nonprofit? And I know this might make me sound dumb. I could have Googled nonprofit. Yeah, I do pro bono work at a nonprofit. Oh, it sounds like you're unemployed, but these people probably have good jobs. I just need to understand more. That's why the moral of this is not to be afraid of a follow-up question. That's what I've learned recently in life. The smartest people ask the questions. I don't want to say the dumbest people don't. Okay, maybe the smartest of the smart people already know the answers. And then one rung below, those are the bright people who ask enough questions to be somewhat informed. And then most people on planet Earth, they just nod and say, when is this conversation done? I don't care enough to understand your profession. But it's always nice when you just ask somebody, what you do for a living? I'm a high school teacher. Everyone goes, okay, I get it. I mean, you can still ask follow-up questions, but at least the profession makes sense. Before this, what do you do? I'm a radio host on this radio station. Okay, I get it. You speak into a microphone. I get it. But when somebody says, yeah, I'm into marketing. I'm an engineer. I'm a consultant. I don't get it. Yeah, right now I'm involved in public relations. I'm a liaison. I'm an ambassador for a corporation that focuses on... uh, Development and external affairs mainly. Okay, I'll just be nodding through this like an idiot. But that's why we have Google. That's now the slogan for America. But that's why we have Google. We can pretend to understand things and then later Google them and become informed. Oh yeah, on the topic of jobs, by the way, had this thought, stay with me. I always say stay with me like I'm going to lose you. This is the most simple podcast ever. All right, stay with me. But on the topic of jobs, there are some jobs, new age jobs that I think attract young people that pay way too much and they shouldn't. I feel like I've mentioned a YouTuber before, but are we all understanding that successful YouTubers, from what I've heard, can make like $500,000 a year just based on clicks, page views, subscriptions? So if you just make these amateur looking videos, but you have enough people clicking on them, whether you're helping them with video games or appliances, or you're just reviewing movies and you have enough of a following, apparently there's a lot of advertisers and endorsements that can make you rich quick. $10,000 per 100,000 views for a YouTuber. So as a teacher, we're going to teach kids about finding their passion and having a skill set that can succeed in the real world. And they may be thinking, yeah, but kind of just want to be a YouTuber, get rich, have a cool alias. Hey, I'm Jay Laser. Today I'm going to guide you through a barbecue. You have to have a cool name too. I would not be Josh Rosenberg if I was a YouTuber. J-Rock. Jay McRazor. On today's YouTube video, I'm going to guide you through chin-ups, sit-ups, and squats. Actually, nobody would go to that YouTube page. I don't even know how these people are making so much money. Like if you play a video game, if you're a gamer, do you always go to a YouTuber first to see how they play the game and then you play the game? Are we getting so much guidance that before we do anything, we need to get some amateur slash expert who has a three-minute video on how-to, how-to, how-to? These people are rich. 
but I assume it's just a select few that are making the cash. I don't know. Maybe a lot of people are making money as YouTubers. And it's a weird way to develop celebrity status, right? Just based on your followers. I have so many followers. I have so many people that clicked like. I have so many subscribers that in a weird way, I'm now famous and I'm the authority on something. However, I know a lot of you have seen a YouTube video. You've sat through five minutes and at the end you go, well, I still don't get it. This person has wasted my time. That's most of them, right? That's most of the YouTubers. They waste your time, but they got your fucking click. They got your click. Clickbait works. Even for this microphone that I'm speaking into right now. I went to YouTube and I typed in best podcast microphone. This is called the Blue Yeti. I don't know if it's the best. It was in my price range. But I watched literally 10 different videos, 10 different YouTubers reviewing this product and guiding me through it. And in the end, they didn't really help me. I just figured, yeah, that's what I can afford. Yeah, that's got the best price tag. I got consumed with trying to understand all the bass and treble and effects and crystal clarity and all this stuff. But in the end, I was just like, I need something that plugs into the computer. I'm not techie. All right, let me transition into the American way. The American way. For all of us that can't make millions as YouTubers, the American way, and this will be some sort of an indictment on capitalism, but not really. More of a focus on acceptance. That one word acceptance would calm the nerves of 98% of people. If you just accepted all the shitty things in your life, you go, yeah, I accept that now. A family member you don't like that much, yeah, I'll accept them. Aspect of your job you don't like that much, yeah, I accept it. Something about your appearance, your body that you don't like, you go, oh, I'll accept that now. What if we really had that ability to just click the acceptance button of life? But in the wild world of economics, Americans owe, right? Most people, we owe on a home loan, on a car loan, on a student loan. We owe on our credit card. We owe, we owe, we owe. We're all probably going to die owing. Some people will kill it financially. I mean, some people will just have everything paid off. Everything's liquid, endless funds. That's good for that one or 2%. But for most of us, we're just going to owe. And if that causes a ton of stress in your daily life, you're screwed. You're actually screwed. It'll destroy your mental health. If you feel like owing is something where you got to keep battling to the top just to get to the surface and you feel it every day that you're beneath the surface, figuratively, not literally, but maybe literally, I don't know how you live your life. So if it's this overwhelming, daunting feeling of I owe, I owe, I owe, I owe, I owe, <laughs> and you feel it every day. I think what you have to understand is that's the country. That's the model. The banks are in charge. The banks, the lifeline of the United States of America. The banks want you owing. No one just buys a home and says, here's $800,000 cash. There you go. I'm going to buy that car. Here's $20,000 cash. There you go. Nobody except for this tiny percentage. But if that was our goal, that's even what we're aspiring to do is pay everything off. Then we are absolutely going to be unhappy. So accept it. Everybody graduating college with your student loans, you could immediately receive that diploma. Now you're in the real world and be unhappy because you're in the hole or just realize that you are a reflection of most people. You're in the hole. Now you got to battle back. But instead of that sounding like you're in a hole, you got to make that synonymous with you're in a normal state. That's it. When it feels like things are stacking up, piling up. Sure, there's financial books you can read. Pay yourself first. You can meet with a financial advisor, an investment consultant, 
somebody who has a job description that you don't really understand, but you can meet with them and they'll help. I'm not acting like this podcast rant is going to help you in any way, but if we could just look at owing, which is how we all live, owing, owing something, some sort of a loan, and say that's normal, that's normal, then it's freeing, it's liberating. Currently, in the search for a home right now, my wife and I, every day, it'll consume us. We will Google homes for sale, homes for sale, and we'll look and look and look until we find something that, of course, is out of our range. Of course, it's out of our range. But then you think about what can we put down and then what will we owe and then how much in the red are we going and then what changes do we need to make? What sacrifices do we need to make? Think about the future. All right, how many more kids? Because I know we want eight, but maybe we would only have six kids. I'm planning to have a lot of kids. Nope, nope, no, I'm not. But it's not changing. You know, for people that just rant about capitalism, we're all screwed Maybe true, but you got to change the mindset. Uh How about that? You can't change things, so you just change your reaction and call it normal. This is a normal state of life. Was that profound or obvious? I feel like the self-analysis after every rant is now part of the Here We Go podcast. Some of you are going a little of both, a little obvious, a little profound. Keep it going. Keep it going. What's next? Hunting. That's what I wrote down. Hunting is next. Anybody out there hunt? I act like I could see all of you listeners right now. Hey, any hunters out there in the crowd tonight? And fishing is hunting. It's just called fishing, but it's hunting. Why is it called fishing instead of hunting for fish? I don't know. You don't call it deering, cowing, ducking, pheasanting. What else do people hunt for? Moose, moosing, elking. Yeah, we're going elking. No, you're going hunting. But when it comes to fishing, you don't say, yeah, we're hunting for salmon today. You're going to kill it? Oh, yeah. But it's called fishing. And it's a great family activity. All right, I thought about this, and I never realized how much of a hypocrite I am because I love the taste of everything. I love beef. I love chicken. I love fish. I love lamb. I love it all. I even order veal. There it is. This is a safe zone. We can all be honest here. I order veal if it's on a menu. If I was in China one day, and I was at a restaurant, and someone took me to dinner, and they served me dog because they ordered for me, I might have a bite. Hate to say it. If I was in another country and they ate horse and they served me horse and it was delicious, I might eat some horse. Gator, I've eaten it. Ostrich, I've eaten it. I eat it all. But here's why I'm a hypocrite. I hate the fact that these animals are dying. I actually feel like there's a tiny animal rights activist that lives deep within my soul. And it's the smallest animal rights activist voice you've ever heard. It's inaudible, but it's there sometimes. But this animal rights activist, he got big, big during Anthony Bourdain's episode to Montana. Have you seen this? He goes to Montana and I think this is where they kill a pig. No, maybe that was Greece. So Montana, they kill a pheasant or they kill a turkey. Sorry, as you could tell, I'm on an Anthony Bourdain binge. Think about how many people are watching a lot of Anthony Bourdain now after his death. Maybe their interest has been piqued a little bit. Maybe some people that never even really knew why he was famous said, now I want to see why he's famous. And then you go back and realize, oh, he's just a genius. Seriously. I mean, his show is as good as a show can be. It's a travelogue. It's poetic. It's beautifully shot by CNN production. And if you're a foodie, it's the best. So I think it was the Greek Islands episode. Now I'm losing track but they kill a pig and they just show you a live pig pigs are cute in my opinion and they shoot the pig destroy the pig 
Shave the Pig. And I'm watching all of this, like almost screaming, like shriek screaming, like it's a horror movie. And I'm not realizing that in two minutes, this is going to look really delicious. And that's what happened. A pig came over. They killed it right there on CNN. And Bourdain's watching it. Sometimes he even participates. He'll help kill it. They drain the blood. Comes out like a faucet. Like Carrie. Just draining the pig blood. They shave it. They shave it with a knife. I think in this episode. Chop the head off. They start to roast it. Then they start to season it. Then they marinate it. And you're going, all right, where are we going now? So I go from animal rights activist to foodie to, oh my God, I'm really in the mood for pork right now. It's not right. So when I say I'm sickened by hunting, I don't really think I am. I just don't like knowing that animals are killed. But if you put a gun in my hand and said, today we're going to hunt the most delicious venison because I have a recipe. We first have to kill the deer, but then I have a recipe and we're going to put that deer on rice. And we're going to pair it with a really nice Cabernet. And I'll go, okay, I'm listening. I'm listening. Anything that has showed up on my plate, it's been killed. And I love, we live across the street from a restaurant called Belcampo. And they call it a gourmet butcher shop. And they tell us how great the cow's lives are. Free range. Wonderful life for the cows. Oh, and oh yeah, then we slaughter them. And then we cook them. But we like to advertise by telling you how great their lives were. It's a very weird business model. These upscale hipster butcher shops that serve you really tasty steaks, letting us know how the animals really must have enjoyed their time before somebody shot it in the skull. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. That's a weird way to advertise the food, is that this animal was having a good time. Highly educated. We treated it with compassion, considerate of their feelings, let them run. We let them work out every morning. They did yoga, Pilates. Oh, oh yeah, and then we definitely killed this animal, probably at the prime of their life, so you could spend $24 right now on that ribeye. That's Joe Rogan's philosophy. I think Anthony Bourdain was with Joe Rogan in the Montana episode, and they do talk about that, how when you hunt, maybe you feel less bad about eating the meat in a weird way. People like me should feel bad, but if you hunt and then eat it, Maybe you should feel less bad. I guess there's some psychology behind that that I don't really understand. I don't really understand. All right, finally, if you're looking for a show right now and you have my kind of attention span, which is kind of short, not quite severe ADHD, but I'm not going to commit to a season of a show. If you recommend The Sopranos and I go, I've never seen it, and you go, oh, well, you have to watch every season from the beginning, of course, I say no. And even movies that are longer than two and a half hours, I'll probably never get around to. I finally saw Casino, and that took me a lot of working up the courage to see Casino. It was worth it, but it's a few hours. There are some great movies that are very long, but if you tell me they're long, I won't want to see them. So this show I'm about to tell you about, it's about 12 minutes. I don't even know if that's a show, a web series that's on Netflix now. You know it. Comedians in cars getting coffee. Jerry Seinfeld, one of the great comics of all time, picks a bunch of other comics, some of his good buddies. He rents an old classic car. Then they go to diners around town. They just eat. Just like Anthony Bourdain's show, Parts Unknown on CNN. It's beautifully shot. The way they show the coffee being poured, the beans being ground, the eggs being scrambled. It's cool. You know, they show you everything in slow motion and they put a little jazz music score under it. And oh yeah, there's a lot of laughter. 
Jerry only picks people that make him laugh. And when you see Jerry laugh, it's charming. It's fun. And Jerry has genuine laughs, it seems, with these people, which is a good sign. He's not jaded. He's not bitter. He still enjoys comedy. You can tell. Maybe it's all he enjoys. And he is a cynic. You know, Jerry, I know a lot of people must view him as just a joyful, happy guy, very wealthy, but he kind of looks a little cranky, you know, at times. He has more in common with Larry David than people think. So when I was scrolling through this show and I saw, oh, Larry David was one of Jerry's guests. I'm catching up on all of this. I always watch things late. But Larry David's episode on comedians and cars getting coffee was interesting because I realized, wait, maybe I don't know Larry. Maybe that character on Curb is a part of him. But the Larry that showed up with Jerry on Comedians and Cars was a health freak. Health freak. You know, he said, I don't have hot lunches. I only have cold salads. He thinks hot food for lunch is off-putting. Weird. He probably just has oatmeal in the morning and then for dinner, like a small piece of fish. And a veggie. He's very skinny. But that's a choice. He won't even eat chicken. He's worried about the cholesterol. And then there's Jerry eating pancakes and eggs. And Jerry gives Larry a bite of the pancake. And the camera just shows Larry chewing the pancake for about 20 seconds. And then he has this look on his face like a baby tasting food for the first time. And he goes, ugh, people live this way? He was stunned that people eat pancakes. To him, it was just poison. Just putting white flour and dough in your mouth and chewing it and dumping sugary syrup on top of it. Larry thought it was just, you know, like carnival food. Such a health freak. And then he brought up something. Here's why I'm bringing this up. He brought up something that was interesting. He has an ex-wife. And he was talking about his ex-wife. And in jest, or maybe in seriousness, he mentioned one of the reasons maybe she doesn't like me is because I stopped drinking coffee and it bothered her. Larry started to drink herbal tea in the morning. And she got pissed. She's like, we can't even share this anymore. And Larry's like, what's the point? I'm drinking out of a mug. You're drinking out of a mug. We both have hot beverages in the morning. Why is this bothering you? He didn't understand his ex-wife, but I did. I need to share things with people. If I'm drinking coffee, I'm happy that my wife also likes coffee. If I'm having a glass of wine, I love that my wife enjoys a glass of wine. If I had coffee every morning and my wife was having tea, oddly, it would bug me. So I was on team ex-wife, not team Larry. For this debate, ask yourself, would you be okay with that? If you knew you loved to have a beer once in a while and your spouse would never have a beer with you, would you be okay with that? Probably. If you loved pizza, you loved pizza, and you knew that your spouse would never want to have a slice of pizza with you, too healthy, or just didn't appeal, would it bug you or would you accept it? That would be tough to accept. I can accept debt. I can accept owing I'm not sure I can accept different food and drinking habits than my spouse. I got lucky in that sense. My wife likes everything. That's our problem. We do not discriminate against any food group, any food item, any drink. We like it all. Literally, I'm not kidding. The only thing my wife dislikes is pickled ginger at a sushi restaurant. Anything else, she's on board. Me, the only thing I'm not crazy about is peanut butter. Anything else, I will happily eat. I wish I had more food aversions. I wish I was the type of guy who said, nah, not going to do sausage. Nah, I really don't do hot dogs. No, I don't do nachos. Oh, no, too much cholesterol in that chicken salad. I, I don't do that. Oh, tuna? No, too much mayo in that. Bring it all on. Bring it all on. I just need to worry about portion control because I'm going to be eating it. 
and everybody has a diet they will recommend, and I will listen to all of these diets. And if I attempt, I will get woozy in two days and just relapse back into my own food routine. So that's why Larry David is divorced. I guess I'll end there. It's a weird final thought, and that is why Larry David is divorced, because he went to herbal tea and his wife still wanted to share coffee with him. Speaking of Larry David, I recently read one of the worst books out there. It's called Hitchhiking with Larry David. I don't even have to bring this up. I probably shouldn't have, but it was at Barnes & Noble, and I thought it would be about Larry David, and it's the dumbest book ever. But now I'm reading something called The Hillbilly Elegy. It's a New York Times bestseller. So I'm going to be fully educated on Appalachia, or Appalachia. How do you pronounce it? I don't know. But now I'm informed about South Africa because of Trevor Noah's masterpiece. Are we book clubbing it? All of my 12 listeners, huh? Are we book clubbing? What are you reading? Tell me on Twitter at jrosenberg957. It's summertime. It's a good time for reading. You can also drop a review on iTunes if you like. I appreciate you tuning in. Episode 23, the greatest, Michael Jordan, 23. Every time you see that number, it just looks good because of MJ. All right, I'm out of here. Time to walk to Wise Sons and break out the credit card for some bagels and locks. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>